1: it's tuesday june 14th
2: 2016 from slate it's the gist i'm mike pesca i'm not in a studio i'm in a park i'm in a park i am observing frolicsome children my own you know the admonishment hug your family closer after a tragedy i decided to take the admonishers up on it but that doesn't mean that I've not been in tune with what's going on. I heard, uh, I heard President Obama today talking about the idea that if he would just say radical Islam, then perhaps there'd be no radical Islam. Here uh, the president is, somehow I could cue the sound from the park, here the president is talking about that. That's the key they tell us. We can't beat ISIL unless we call them radical Islamists. What exactly would using this label accomplish? What exactly would it change? Would it make ISIL less committed to trying to kill Americans? Would it bring in more allies? Is there a military strategy that is served by this? The answer is none of the above. Calling a threat by a different name does not make it go away. Now, this idea that we could abracadabra away our problems, it's clearly nonsense. And it's nonsense for all the reasons the president said, but it's just nonsense on the face of it. The one thing that the president has done by not saying radical Islam is he's forestalled the inevitable process where that phrase gets changed to something and then something else, right? First it's conservation, then it's energy independence, then it's alternative energy. So if we were saying radical Islam, yeah, it would piss off our, our allies and the Jordanians and conflate the situation but we'd be three phrases past that although sometimes I wonder what if it were true what if it were true that but for the pronouncement of a phrase we could solve a problem like the the pet overpopulation problem perhaps it is true that just one phrase would show that we understand it and cut through all the red tape that's been gumming up our solving of the pet overpopulation problem that phrase lustful chihuahuas. He can't even say lustful chihuahuas. How does he understand the problem? Well, even though I am in a park and I am hugging my kids closer, I'm also embracing you, just listeners, by giving you a full show. We have John D. Domenico on. He's the guy who plays Trump on the Trump cast. We talk about impersonations in general. But first, it's a postcard about the post office. Devin Leonard has written, I'm going to call it the definitive history of the United States Postal Service, one of those books that you didn't know you wanted to read until you're halfway through, and you're like, oh my God, I never knew. It's called Neither Snow Nor Rain, A History of the U.S. Postal Service, and what we're going to do is break it up into bite-sized pieces. I'm calling them postcards, and today's postal postcard is the thing I think that captivated me most in the book, the history of the post office and slavery. Two, one for good, one for absolute ill, American institutions. So, Devin, you start with – if you start talking about the United States Post Office, a great starting point is Benjamin Franklin. And he had thoughts about how the postal system would affect this peculiar institution, slavery.
1: No, you're right, Mike. I mean and basically what Franklin wanted to do was unify – the you know the American colonies so the, you know, at the time, and uh, the, he he thought that the the mail system would you know enable Americans to, to communicate with each other and sort of create their own culture. He wasn't even thinking about uh, pulling away from Britain at, at that point, but of course he he, he he did get there get there eventually. So he was thinking about unifying Americans, but also enabling them to exchange information like newspapers and mm-hmm. things like that, which the Europeans didn't do. So he was trying to. Get us all together, and and also you know make people think more. And inevitably, to do that, you know led to breaking with Britain and freedom for for America. So so that's kind of where the postal service starts. And he thought it
2: was inevitable that if materials were freely shared in the mail, this right. institution of slavery would die, would wither, because the, you know, this was the faith he had in the intellect. And to him, the post office was an offshoot of just you know being a, an aware and informed person in the world.
1: Well, and it wasn't just him; it was you know a, you know, a, a fair amount of Northerners thought that you know, basically if you have the free circulation through the mail of, you know, of information slavery, you know, you know, can't survive. But of course, you know, it did survive despite (laughs) this great postal service that he, that he, uh, you know, created.
2: Well, the postal service then did enact rules that were specifically enacted to try to Propagate slavery. Could you tell me about that. Well,
1: no. That, well, that's the fascinating thing is is that, it, and, it, and it also sort of speaks to uh, Thomas Jefferson's postmaster general, Gideon Granger, started thinking, "Hey, if you know, if we let Black Americans, both enslaved and free Americans, if they start exchanging mail, and also, you know, if you if you have Black uh, uh, letter carriers sort of riding around and talking to people, then they'll all get together and and they'll they'll rebel. They'll, yeah. they'll be a race war. And there was an example of that, which and he was, was Haiti. Pro- Haiti Sorry, had,
2: yeah. A, yeah, Haiti had a slave rebellion, and he said what we'd be doing is creating a norm a norm of a black person a postmaster sort of at the at the dissemination point of information and that would be really dangerous and therefore the rule was no black letter carriers
1: right and 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 again free free or or enslaved they can't touch the mail because you know this is just going to cause all kinds of problems and that was on the books until the civil war
2: and did abolitionists try to use the mail
1: well, yeah, and they did, and, and and some people call this the first direct mail campaign. It was in the the 1830s. there were a bunch of northern abolitionists. They sent tons and tons and tons of abolitionist literature to southern southern post offices. and and they got, they got the names of you know, of all these sort of prominent people, and they sort of flooded the southern post with with all of this material. And a lot of it went to Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, people got wind of it, and the, the, a mob broke into the, the the you know the post office in in uh, South Carolina, and they they burned the mail. They burned all these abolitionists, including William Garrison, the famous abolitionist. They, they, they burned him in an effigy, and in that and uh, the Jackson administration wanted to ban the, you know that material from the mail, but e- even Southern senators they wouldn't go for that because because they, they thought that was you know. Federal government overreaching, so.
2: right? So John C. Calhoun yeah. winds up—I mean, just because of strange right. politics—but he was so anti-Jackson's dictatorial tendencies, <laughs> <I know. laughs> as well as being a slave owner, right. that you have Calhoun standing up for the abolitionist right to free speech. <laughs> yeah, yeah, crazy. So you know, after the Civil War, what's been the history of the post office and African
1: Americans? Well, I mean, in, in in some ways, it's a very proud history because it, you know it was—it's it was, an institution that. Uh, you know, hired a lot of uh, blacks and Hispanics, and, and and enabled them to move up into the to the middle class, and uh, so so in that sense, it's been a great equalizer. But there have been some there some other stains, you, you know, on you know, the postal service in its history. Under Woodrow Wilson, Albert Burleson, who was the postmaster general, he was a supporter of segregation, and and he wanted to segregate, you know, you know the federal workforce, and didn't want. Blacks in post offices, and you know, he, he wanted them in places like the dead letter office where they wouldn't be seen. So that's a shameful moment. Even though the postal service is seen as a great force in in helping minorities move into middle class,
2: this is a little off the point of what this postcard is about. But in saying that, you remind me that the post office is so often a touchstone for the president and his personality i mean it's a federal office a federal appointee it's quasi cabinet position and so to take woodrow wilson who's this noted racist yeah he's going to be racist in the post office to take fdr think about what the fireside chats were he was trying to do a similar thing with the post office like use stamps as a way to tell a story a tell a story of america that is consistent in the history of the post office well that's and, the, and Jackson as we said a dictator he wanted to clamp down on the post office
1: and and also the postal service was a great sort of patronage mill and so usually what a president would do was he would put his you know campaign manager in charge of, of you know the post office and part of his job was making sure the mail got delivered but it was also finding jobs for all of your uh, you know, campaign workers yeah. and stuff. So everybody did that up, up, up into 1970. But but uh, FDR's postmaster general James Farley, he basically rebuilt the Democratic Party and turned it into this huge machine, largely through uh, you know postal patronage. So. Yeah. And Farley's, Farley Post Office is the one where we have the uh,
2: epigram on top, neither snow nor (laughs) rain, Herodotus. For the rest of the quote, go look at 34th and 8th Avenue for the book. It's called Neither Snow Nor Rain, A History of the United States Post Office. And Devin Leonard is its author. Thank you for this postcard, Devin. Sure. Thanks, Mike. So we're sitting here with a very famous and impressive American. I think you know the voice.
0: Hello, everybody. I am so happy to be on this show. It's really, really fantastic. You know, I have to tell you.
2: That is Donald J. No, it's not. It's John D. Domenico. You, if you listen to Trump Cast, and you should, he does the Trump impression. He's the in house Trump impressionist on Trump Cast, and he does just about the best Trump impression out here. And I was out in the hall talking to him, and I'm like, these are so many good questions I'd love to ask if I had my own podcast and a studio and a microphone, and wait, I do. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you a couple of these questions. But first, let's talk about Trump. Before right. he became a national political figure, were you doing impressions of him.
0: I've been doing Trump for 12 years. Mm-hmm. So I've been since 2002, since the end of the very first season of The Apprentice, I got a call for a voiceover. I actually went out and bought that first season. I sat down for about 30 hours and right. I cracked his voice and I went in into the audition on that Monday and I got the booking. Now
2: I listened to, uh, I once heard a great interview. It was on the uh, Dennis Miller show and they had Dana Carvey and Frank Caliendo. 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 Yeah, Frank's
0: amazing. Oh, and so Jesus is Dana. A, right.
2: And they were talking shop. And I think they had slightly different methods. But what Dana does is he finds a way in. And usually it's a person he can do tweaked a little bit. So the best example that he gives is that his George W. Bush is Mr. Rogers mixed with a little John right. Wayne. Is that one of the methods you use to nail a voice? I
0: Yes. Except for Trump, there were, I couldn't figure out a way in. No one else was doing him. Mm-hmm. Usually I'll listen to somebody else. I was like, how's this person doing this? But with Trump, I did it much more scientifically. I sat down and I wrote out, I broke it down. There's usually eight five to eight elements. There's throat placement, nasal placement, vocal production, cadence, and I always call it the secret sauce. It's like when you do old Powers, baby. He's very up, baby. Yeah. So it's so with, with Trump, it's much more of an attitudinal kind of thing. You you what are you talking about? He can just, you know, get out of here, go away, you're fired.
2: So you were tasked with Trump as a gig. What percentage of your impressions or someone asked you to do an impression and what percentage are you just hear someone either a lot or a little and you're like, I think I can nail this. You do it on your own.
0: The overwhelming majority is when people ask me to do it. It's a, a couple of years ago, Guy Fieri. It became yes. popular with Diner Drive. And, well, actually, it was um, uh, it was Minute to Win It. So uh, my corporate client said, hey, are you doing Guy Fieri yet? And I was like, hold on, baby. Let me see if I get the voice. You know what I mean? I'm driving the bus to bust the Flavotel, baby. Yeah. Love, peace, and taco grease. Yeah. Do you think
2: the people we regard as the great impressionists are actually nailing the voices the best, or is it that they're expressing something the most comedically or getting an essence of the character that we love to hear?
0: There were some great impressionists who had, like, crappy material. Yeah. They could do the voice, but it was like, okay, that's great. It's when you're able to merge really strong material with the voices, it kind of gives it that added value and hopefully gives you an insight into whoever you're impersonating. Daryl Hammond is a is a great example. One of the things he does with all of his voices, and Clinton's kind of the perfect one. I noticed every time he would adopt a character, he added something really he put an edge on it. And his Clinton was kind of so sexual, and hey, how you doing? Good to see you. You know what I mean? He just added that kind of sexuality to Clinton that hadn't been there before. And I just thought, oh, that's great, because he put his stamp on each one of his voices and he does it so beautifully. And even with his Trump on SNL, he's kind of taken it and and made it his own in the sense that they make a suggestion to him and then his character, his Trump, adopts it as his idea. Does Trump
2: accent sound, because to me as a New Yorker, it's not not a New York accent. It doesn't sound very New York, but I guess to other people it's like, oh, what a New York accent.
0: He has a New York accent maybe on like every fifth and seventh word, Mm -hmm. Because there's something that he does. He kind of over articulates. But then he says, listen, you worked really, really hard, but you're fired. So it's on certain words you hear the New York thing. Yeah, fired, no R in there. And there's also that crazy cadence that he has. And the only other person from Queens that I've ever heard with that was kind of like Christopher Walken, Mm -hmm. who has this very unusual way of speaking. And Trump has that very same kind of weird way of speaking. And when you kind of put the components together, that's Donald Trump. I have to tell you, doing a fantastic job, really.
2: I'll give you another one like that. Andrew Cuomo, our governor, he has that a little bit. So he definitely has a New York accent, but it's a little weird and it's a cadence. But I'll throw this out with uh Walken. I've heard interviews. I bet you have too. That The first thing he does when he gets a script is cross out all the punctuation. Right. When I heard that, I'm like, that's it. That unlocked every secret to how Walken talks Right. It, it, and yeah. probably the people you do – don't offer you that kind of key in so often. Oh yeah, yet.
0: it's yeah, it's amazing. You, 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 you know, for me, anytime I reach research anybody, like when I started doing Jay Jay Leno, yeah, ain't doing anything with everything. You know, because Jay Leno's got a little bit of a lift, yeah, <laughs> and his voice goes up and down. I mean, and originally, I think it was from Boston. I was, and I listened to him. I was saying, is there any Boston in there? Or is there, you know, should I put it in somewhere? So I always I always try to do the research and find, you know, where this person's coming from, where they were born, how this affected them, and you know, like. Were are those little key components? So when I'm doing Trump and talking about him and how fantastic he is, really, I have to tell you, really fantastic, absolutely tremendous, and I make sure to put a little New York on at least some of the words. That way, it's perfect.
2: Does doing a character, perhaps even, let me say, a loathsome character, make you like him or identify him with him more?
0: First off, my, my voice has gotten deeper and raspier recently because I'm doing him so much.
2: You're winning um, all the time. Winning's becoming I'm so easy. Just
0: winning, I'm just winning. I'm winning in the primaries, the caucuses. I'm what winning said with tall people, yep. short people, and I'm doing very, very well with the poorly educated. I love the poorly <laughs> educated. What's happening is I'm becoming a little more short and curt. because I'm doing him all the time, which is kind of funny. Like wrap it up, let's go. But I try to approach him as a actor approaching a character, and I'm I, mm-hmm. I, I try not to get too involved in the politics of it. I need to be agnostic so I can kind of play the middle of the road because I play for large corporate audiences and I need the people who don't like Trump to like him and the people who already like him not to not to go over the top. So I have to ride it down the middle and keep the keep the integrity of the character. Now I know with Improvers
2: are very collaborative Mm -hmm. Stand-ups are really standoffish Until you get to a certain level Then maybe they learn What about you guys? What about the impressionists? Do you collaborate Or is it more This is mine Stay away from Or or even like You're stealing the the hook I had with my impression What's the community
0: like? For the most part Within the impersonator community You'll call somebody up And say Hey how does this sound? Yeah Am I close?
2: Yeah Uh, So there's a new impersonation show It's a competition show I think of people do the impersonations Against each other like a blood sport. Is that really how we should be, we should be looking at impersonation?
0: Absolutely. It's a total blood sport. If uh-huh. you don't get it right, you should die. <laughs> it should be dead on 100%. You know?
2: John D. Domenico is many, many people. Donald Trump is the one you hear on the Trump cast. And you, you want to plug up? Uh, what's a website? Gotta- uh, Johnny
0: D.net, J-O-H-N-N-Y-D.net or at Johnny D23 on Twitter.
2: There you go. On
0: Twitter, which I'm on constantly. I'm constantly on Twitter. I'm huge on Twitter. Tremendous. Tremendous Tremendous. terrific. Thanks 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 for having me on.
2: And now the spiel, the jails. On my show Hang Up and Listen, I have talked about the tradition of the horrible baseball segue. During radio ads, Sam Horn and Matt Shoemaker, both major league players and announcers, will shoehorn any sponsor's reference in, no matter how discordant, into a product placement. Yes, yes, yes. A call to the pen should, in fact, be sponsored by Verizon or Pac Bell. Or tonight's airing on Turner Movie Classics of Call Northside Seven Seven Seven. Jimmy Stewart as reporter P.J. McNeil and Lee J. Cobb as his hard-bitten editor. And Rays hitters sure were biting hard on Nishak's breaking ball today. See, it's acceptable. That's all acceptable. That's all fine. As is, Twins offense is heating up and Friedrich air conditioners will help you in these summer months or... Jose Altuve sparking the Astros' offense, and A.C. Delco's shocks and struts can do the same for your Mark Melanson. Such a dependable reliever. And dependable relief is gas-x. When that three-bean salad repeats like a Kyle Schwarber multi-home run game, it's gas-x. I accept all those. But for years, the Mets, my team, had a rather curious ad. You might say it was trying a little too hard. You might say it was just out of place on an MLB broadcast. You might say, why are these people buying radio ads at all? Here now from earlier this season. Met's with a three to one lead on to protect it as Hansel Robles, just as Norman Seabrook and the Corrections Officers Benevolent Association protect patrol the toughest precincts in New York. The Jails, Coba, New York's boldest. I suppose a positive media impression could help the bottom line of the prison guards, right? Come next contract negotiations, the public will associate the prison guards with all that is righteous and noble and a one-run lead in the eighth. I don't know. Maybe having the president of the prison guard's name be as familiar as Mets reliever Jerry's Familia, maybe that makes sense because I actually can't explain it. I don't know why it makes sense, but now it's all making sense. But now it all makes sense because we recently learned that when it came to magical Mets media moments, Norman Seabrook was a giver, but in so many other walks of life, He was simply on the take.
0: For 21 years, Norman Seabrook has been president of New York's Correction Officers Benevolent Association, or COBA. Today he appeared in federal court on the other side of the law, facing corruption charges, led here, investigators say, by an abuse of power and greed. In November 2013, Seabrook complained to a friend about working hard to invest COBA's money without any personal financial benefit asserting that it was
2: time that Norman Seabrook got paid. Some further details. After putting $20 million of union funds in a high-risk hedge fund, according to the criminal complaint filed by the Office of the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York, prosecutors say he was given $60,000, delivered in a Salvatore Farragamo bag, one of his favorite luxury brands. So I was keen to see if the Mets would still puff up the role of Mr. Seabrook in leading the jailers of New York in that toughest of precincts, the jails. So here's the tape. This is the first Mets game after Seabrook was arrested. I was listening to the part where they normally plug COBA, where they normally plug the jails. I hope they still give Norm a shout-out. I hope they talk about New York's boldest. Here it comes.
1: So Familia coming on to protect the lead just as the Corrections Officers Benevolent Association protect and patrol the toughest precincts in New York, the jails. COBA, New York's boldest.
2: Oh no! No Norman! See no Seabrook, say no Seabrook! They would broke no Seabrook! As the Mets announcers climb the ladder and set him down. And he has not been on a Mets broadcast since. Still, there are other references to the corrections officers, mentions
1: big and small... Kelly Johnson on deck, offering protection in the lineup, just as the Corrections Officers Benevolent Association, Protect and Patrol, the toughest precincts in New York, the jails, Coba, New York's boldest.
2: But there has been no full-blown shout out to the disgraced former union head who wants to keep a prisoner from testifying against one of his officers, quote, single-handedly shut down the city court system by directing his members in a work stoppage that halted almost all the buses that ferry inmates to and from courts. But why? Why no ads, I say? This is an opportunity for the Mets announcers to really lean in. And now we've got Granderson on third, Conforto on second, Cespedes walking on his way to first. You could say that the bags are stuffed. Just like Norman Seabrook of the Corrections Officer Benevolence Association once stuffed $60,000 in cash into a Salvador Ferragamo bag. It was a clear RBI, riches before integrity situation for the president of COBA, New York's ballsiest. Or how about... And with runners-on, manager Terry Collins really walking a ledge here by leaving reliever Addison Reed in. Just like Norman Seabrook is allegedly guilty of honest services fraud and one count of conspiracy to commit honest services fraud. You know, according to the New York Times, Norman Seabrook once had one of his corrections officers dress as a cartoon character to mock a commissioner who was leading a tour of Rikers, which is exactly what Mr. Met's job is whenever Chipper Jones came to Shea fine Mets tradition. Now, I know it's only wishful thinking to hope that they'll do this, to hope that the Mets announcers will still find time to honor the union chief. Maybe such a time can be when catcher Kevin Powecki skillfully blocks a Jacob deGrom fastball in the dirt, just like Norman Seabrook blocked prison reform on notoriously harsh Rikers Island, standing in the way of ending solitary confinement, in effect, stranding the runner in a cell alone! In contravention to the best human rights practices, confined to a dank cell, just as young hurler Stephen Matz is confined to a pitch count of 105 in his starts. You know, Mets second baseman Neil Walker, ironically, has a walk rate of below 10%, not much of a walker, sort of like the president of the Corrections Officer Benevolent Association, is no longer president, is in no way connect, did not act out of benevolence, and associates with a dirty real estate developer now cooperating with authorities. Norman Seabrook, as union head, as respectable member of society, and as a mainstay on Mets broadcasts, he's out of here! That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Mary Wilson, who has this idea for an awesome, awesome TV show, The Pope's Wacky Antics, yet she can't say it. She can't say Vatican Sitcom. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai, who has this great idea for a product that prevents chapping because like heals like. It's used with actual human body parts. And, And he would be able to sell this so easily if only he would bring himself to say the phrase cannibal lip balm. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the panoply network all of these pronouncements have led for him if he would just admit it what he does every day upon hearing these credits the gradual facepalm the gist it's useful we do it quite easily and yet i can't bring myself to say it's full of practical aplomb and thanks for listening i'm going back to the park